Welcome to the Ogilvy Podcast, featuring expert conversations and analysis on the complexities of culture, technology, business, and marketing. Ogilvy is a creative network making brands matter across 132 offices in 83 countries. I'm Steve Mudd, marketing strategist, agent provocateur, and host of the Ogilvy Podcast. In a world full of fake news, most of us are pretty smart. We can easily sort fact from fiction. Being well-educated, well-read, news-aware means that we'll never be fooled into believing some frivolous piece of propaganda from a nefarious foreign entity or malicious bad actor, right? Right? We're, We're that smart, right? But what should we do when our friends and family get fooled? How should we react when our political allies fall prey to these influences? What should we do when our companies are perhaps the victims of some sort of organized fake news attack? But is fake news even a problem if it furthers our cause? And just what does fake even mean? My guest today is Ian Bundred, Managing Director for PR and Influence at Ogilvy um, in EMEA. How are you today, Ian? Are we having fun? Yeah, good. Thanks, Steve. How are you? I'm, I'm well. And you're you're talking to us from our London office today. That's right. Sunny London. It's uh, it's July, so actually we actually have got some sun for once, and it's a lovely uh, lovely day. Excellent. Um, so so tell me about like how would you categorize this world of fake news and disinformation? What's going on there right out that that uh, our clients, that brands need to be aware of today? So I think I mean it's interesting you said fake news and disinformation. I mean the number one thing. That I've say about this subject is um, it's so important to get the language right because actually fake news has become a contested term right and no no by no more than the president of the United States who keeps using it basically to slag off um, very reputable news outlets and I think <laughs> you know where possible I try and avoid that term except when I'm trying to invite people to a podcast, in which case I'll always use the term fake news because it, it gets, uh, gets clicks, right? <laughs> um, but uh, no, joking aside, I think um, here in the UK, where I, where I work with government clients particularly on this issue, we try and categorize you know, areas of what we call misinformation and areas of what we call disinformation. And disinformation is, is really where you are seeing these nefarious actors trying to, trying to spread um, you know, content that is not correct to use that term, um, often maliciously, uh, all for commercial benefit. Um, and that's a really imp- uh, important challenge for society uh, and for communicators. Mil- misinformation is just that kind of growing bunch of a lot of nonsense we see on, online. Is it true or is it not? Sometimes that's done for commercial reasons. Sometimes it's just done because people uh, uh, see something and share it without necessarily knowing the, the true facts. So, so it's less of a challenge, I think, for us. But it's really important that we, we, we go away from the sort of the vacuous headlines of, of, of political propaganda around fake news and really concentrate on this challenge around disinformation. Do you feel, um, how, do you, how do you think that the, the organization of disinformation um, has changed? Are there, like, who's, who's actually actively propagating disinformation right now? Well, I think that the, the disinformation that's, that's most in the public eye is really around what, what Facebook themselves talk about as cross-border actors um, and of course uh, there's a lot of, of right, rightly you know column inches being written about the threat from Russian bots and, and such like that driven by the internet research agency which is a 12,000 strong army of, of, uh, of propaganda artists uh, funded by the Russian government right and don't be wrong the IRA as they're called internet research agency are a challenge for us but actually disinformation goes a lot further there's a huge amount of individuals doing this 
Um, often they might just be, you know, teenagers from a basement trying to make some money by sending shock headlines and getting advertising, or they might be, you know, organized political parties in a particular area or organized individuals with a view to try and sow discord because of their own particular agendas. So it, it has many different forms. And I think the social media platforms, you know, whether it's Facebook, whether it's Twitter, YouTube, for example, are seeing different threats all the time. Um, and they're coming from different voices. And I think one of the mistakes we make is to try and put this all into one bucket, one, you know, one bogeyman of the Russian bots in particular. So how, um, I mean, so is it, is it government's role then to save us from this disinformation or do we have some culpability here as well? Well, I was interested in, in how you started the call, you know, the, the uh, podcast and you'll talk about how aren't we all really brilliantly and we all know what, we all know what's right. Of course we don't. I mean, I think you were hopefully have your tongue firmly in your cheek when you said that. Um, we've all been susceptible of seeing that thing online and mentioning it down the, down the pub or, you know, or whatever. Um, like, I, saw, I read this great thing on Twitter. Like, oh, really? Who was that from? I've no idea. Just saw something. And, you know, is it true? Is it not? Who, who knows, right? So, yeah, we've all, I think we've all got a responsibility to be a little bit more, have a little bit more healthy scepticism. Um, yeah, in the same way that, for example, a someone in, the, in New York who you know, is, reads the New York Times will trust what they read in the New York Times a lot more than they might, for example, trust what they see in National Enquirer, right? You know, the, these, the, the voices you see on your Facebook feed, are not, some of them are National Enquirer voices, some of them are New York Times voices, let's put it that way. <laughs> I, um, saw the, I saw the quote on the internet from Winston Churchill who said, you can't believe everything you read on the internet. So clearly that's... <laughs> exactly, yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> um, or, uh, but I mean, that, that, saying that it kind of reminds me that this is, this is something that's been around forever more, right? When I was looking into this subject for the first time, I found out that there's actually a fake news act of parliament in the UK that, last, that was introduced in 1688 by <laughs> King James II. Now, his, history fans will know that King James II lost power in 1688 in part of the Glorious Revolution. So clearly his fake news act didn't do very much good. Uh, but, you know, what I would say is they were worried about propaganda then, they're worried about challenges then. You know, the, the, the thing that we're looking at right now is a, is a global phenomenon. Yeah, and disinformation in particular is, is a real challenge. But the concept of spreading lies is not new. We just got a new medium to, chat, to, to spread it through. No, and I'm, I'm fascinated too, as, as a student of history, understanding how, you know, the American government certainly had its hands in trying to influence Russian elections in the past and things like you. Yeah. So, so clearly we, yeah. we have a little bit of history with this disinformation. It, it should be able to recognize it at least for what it is. Yeah, there's a really great book um, about, the not an American example, but the Second World War. Um, there's a book, I think it's called Operation Mince Me, or the operation was called that anyway, which was a whole bit of propaganda that the UK government did to distract the German, uh, the, you know, the German Axis powers, I think they're called, you know, Germany, Italy, etc., from D-Day. So, you know, uh, D-Day now was that you know, 70 years ago, etc. They, they, uh, they wanted to make people think that they were attacking in the Mediterranean, not in, not in Normandy. So mm. they, uh, they actually dropped some, oh, maybe it's not D-Day anyway, whatever it was. They dropped some, a, 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 dead, a dead soldier's body into the, um, into the Mediterranean to distract mm. the powers. And, it, and actually it was all about trying to create this, this distraction and take forces away from the bit of Italy they were attacking, not the bit of, of the Greece where this, this poor, um, I think it was a, a poor Welsh vagrant they'd found in Whitechapel, how they got him to go uh, 
they took his body, dressed him up as a major, and then uh, and then dropped his body over sea, overboard. And suddenly, uh, all of the Italians, I think, felt that they were getting attacked from a different point. <laughs> and, yeah, propaganda has been around forever more, right? And states sponsor propaganda as well. What I think is difficult, what's different about right now, is you're seeing a lot of examples where things like deep fakes, video content, stories you're seeing online, the, spe- the speed of which you're seeing these stories online without the, necessarily the, the time to really interrogate them. You know, that, is, that is coming up against the kind of a busy, distracted user, a distracted individual. Um, and therefore, people are starting to take up some of these things as fact, whether they are fact or not. Um, and actually, you know, going back to the Donald Trump example, in a world where facts are disputed, you know, where what is fake news versus you know, a fake news outlet, what is that to you? Who, who, who decides what, what is real or not? Well, actually, you decide individually, right? And when you're getting, being bombarded with stuff that is just designed to try and distract you, to disrupt you, to make you feel a bit less positive about your country, for example, it's pretty hard to just turn to, to see, the, see the wood for the trees. Hmm. I wonder, I mean, is there a way, is there actually a way for individuals to tell you know, when, when disinformation is being sent towards them. You're talking about where the source of where information might be coming from is, is, is an obvious one. But, um, you know, if, if I know that if my uncle is posting it, it's probably fake. It's, it's probably some sort of disinformation. Can't trust my uncle at all. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, you know, what, what are the tools that we have to be able to discern between what might be disinformation and what um, is, is actually intended to educate us? Well, I mean, the first thing I would say is, um, there's no, there's no, so far at least, there's no like one panacea, right? Um, everything I've seen, I've been looking at this now for about 18 months for, with various different clients and just as a personal kind of obsession, <laughs> if I will. Everything I've seen is that, frankly, there's a lot out there, but there's also, it's not a consistent picture. We can't just look at where, where a piece of news was shared and suddenly decide that means that it must be fake. Um, there's lots of different ways we can analyze social media conversations. You know, little tips like, for example, how recently an account was set up. How many, you know, it, who's it following? Is it following other information sources that look like um, they're, they're, you know, potentially automated uh, Twitter bots or potentially, you know, fake accounts? There's little ways you can find sort of have an idea for stuff. But actually, I think some of the most threatening disinformation is actually from people like your uncle. It's, pe- yeah, it's, it's people we know with a particular agenda who've grasped onto that, to what they've seen online and seen it as a reinforcement of their own worldview. Hmm. And, I, and that kind of leads me, I think, to, to the bigger challenge we've got with, with disinformation, which is simply saying that it's wrong doesn't mean that you're going to change someone's opinion, right? Um, the biggest challenge for this is, I think, the most, the most immediate and obvious challenge is in the vaccine debate, right? Uh, hopefully, most people on this, on this conference call would agree with me. But um, hopefully most people on this podcast would agree with me that uh, vaccines are valuable and important and a good way to protect yourself, your family, your kids in particular. Um, But there's a whole movement around anti-vaccines. And those people aren't people who are desperately trying to, you know, break society or cause cause harm they're people who are just worried about their kids who don't who, who feel as though this thing may hurt, hurt them and aren't convinced it's going to work but but previously th- those individuals may have lived in a, in a little sort of town you know perhaps um a small village in, in a uk context perhaps a, 
suburban area in, in the in Midwest, for example, picture the person. And they would speak to a few of their friends and some of their friends would say, no, don't worry, it's fine. My kid did it, it was fine, it's all good. Now they've got an entire internet to go searching around. And now they've got a whole bunch of people who are saying, this is a problem, worry about this, I'm worried about this. See this story I've seen. And, and suddenly their own natural biases, which are not coming from a malicious place, but their own natural biases are being reinforced online. And, and, what, and what do communicators do? Well, they turn around and say, ah, no, no, no. You may, think, you may be worried about your child, but this person in a white coat, this doctor, tells you it's fine. And, and what do they say in response? They say, well, you would say that, wouldn't you? Um, and, and the reality is, you know, the, the behavioral, if you look at the behavioral science of this, and of course at Ogilvy, it's a huge part of all our communications is, is understanding the behavioral science behind individual motivations. The behavioral science tests all show that if you tell a, you know, a parent that they're, they're wrong to worry about, their vac about vaccines and that their absolutely medical evidence is totally on, their, on our side, you may as well be punching them in the face because the same synapses in their brain uh, light up when you tell them something that they believe to be wrong as when you punch them in the face. <laughs> and so I just think like one of the problems we've got is this desperate response to disinformation is fact-checking and fact-checking doesn't work. Most of the time, these, we're, we're talking about individuals who are being either maliciously or accidentally misled and it's because it, they're grasping onto to their own worldviews, their own biases, and they're looking for, for their biases to be reinforced. And we're saying, no, your bias is wrong. And, and that's not, that's not going to change their mind. And I wonder too, it's, you know, those, those biases I think are so tied to the stories that we tell ourselves, the, the stories that we believe. Um, you know, do we trust the government? Do we trust the healthcare companies? Do we trust the, the people making the vaccines? Or, or do we trust Uncle Bob who hasn't vaccinated or showered in a while? I, I, I'm wondering, how do you, how do you change that? Um, I, I guess in the, in the case of vaccines, how do, you, how do you overcome that to make sure that people make the decision that is most logical and, and helpful for all of society and for themselves? Well, first off, I think you've got to be realistic about what you can achieve, right? Any good communications campaign starts with a proper objective, a realistic objective, and then looks at the audience. Um, in, the, in, in the vaccine case, it's, it's obvious to me. You know, what you need to do is understand, not, you're not suddenly going to persuade a bunch of anti-vaxxers that they're wrong. What you can hopefully do is get them to start questioning, questioning whether they're right. And when they start to look into it and start to see people like them who have changed their minds, the scientific experiments so far seem to suggest that that moves them on the journey towards starting to vaccinate their kids. And it is a journey because simply saying you're wrong is going to get, is going to get a massive backlash, right? So I think, you know, it's really about being, you know, being led by the objective and the audience. And then from there, starting to tell a counter narrative. Going away from, from vaccines, specifically looking at other campaigns we've, we've looked at, um, it's very interesting to see how individual echo chambers, and this, this is really the problem we're looking at, is echo chambers, um, how individual echo chambers can often be um, take, taken on that journey, taken towards other things, by simply being reminded of a different context, a different, taken out of their biases slightly, by, by reminding people that it's a complicated world and lots of things are happening. And don't forget, as I said earlier, that one of the big challenges that we face in, the, in these points is that people are seeing so much content right now that they grasp onto what they know or what reinforces their own assumptions. For us to sort of come back and, and, and counter that, you need to still tell a sympathetic story that they can latch onto. 
So that's not telling them they're wrong. It's actually just showing a different story, something that they can emotionally connect with and start to open their own mind to a potential alternative uh, point of view. So this, uh, obviously, with you looking at, at the political landscape, there's a, there's a big macro picture of this. Even with vaccines, you're looking at a fairly macro view of you know, how we view the healthcare industry and, and what they're trying to do to us. Um, what, what do you think will happen when this disinformation becomes more pointed towards specific companies, specific brands, specific people that are maybe outside of that, that realm of politics? Well, I don't think it's about when, it's, it's already happening, right? There's a huge amount of, um, of evidence now that, that brands and companies across, uh, across the world are getting attacked by false accusations that have you know, no basis in reality. The problem for that is, you know, brands are pretty good at, at defending themselves against, you know, issues. You know, I, I'm a crisis consultant. A huge part of my work is going in when someone's made a mistake or potentially made a mistake and, and helping them work through how to communicate that transparently and in, the, and in an appropriate way. But, but now you're getting these accusations coming in, at, you know, a mile a minute, often from completely out of left field. And, you know, as a communications professional, particularly in-house, you turn around and go, Oh my God! Like, but that's that's not even like it's not even possible. Never mind true, like, and but this Twitter user four 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 says that it is. Do I need to respond? And if I respond, do I do I just give it legs? And actually, you know, it's it's a, it's a complete you know it's a complete mind bending uh, challenge. So I think you've got to really think about how do you respond um, in a in a thorough and methodical way. Um, and that, you know, here at Ogilvy, we, we, we talk about a four-step process, one that we've worked on with the UK government, um, which is firstly to find the conversations that are happening online and start to isolate which, which attacks and challenges matter. Um, so you find that, and then you assess those and see which audiences are being targeted. In the case of state-sponsored um, uh, disinformation, there are particular vulnerable groups that are being targeted just to sow discontent, right? So individuals who are perhaps more open to believing certain things are being targeted with, for example, in the US, a bunch of nonsense linked to the kind of alt-right movements that are you know, by no means Republican linked, but by certainly are, like all their Twitter bios have Make America Great Again as their kind of, as their bio, for example. Yeah, leave that as you will. Um, so once you find it and you assess it, you then need to, to campaign against it. And the campaign point is this whole thing around counter-narratives. You've got to not just tell them they're wrong, but, but show them and dem- take them on a journey that makes them start to realize there is a huge amount of a, a, a difference out there and that their own biases, their own kind of assumptions might well not be quite right. And they need to start to think, think again about the subject. It's not just saying, but here's the facts. It's actually saying this audience that has been exposed in this way at this time is a worry for us as an organization. And therefore, we're going we're gonna to micro-target their audi- that audience with specific campaign messaging that reassures them and starts to close off this negative issue. And I think, you know, realistically, that final stage of targeting and actually using the social media platform's fantastic targeting techniques to, their be- to your benefit, that gives you a moment where you can actually go around and, and start to see, diff- see change happen, to take people on that change journey and get them to be from negative to neutral, and then hopefully neutral to positive. Um, and if you take them to the individual audiences, you can, you can start as a company to sit back and go, 
hey, you know, this was a problem. This was something we need to work on. But you know what? We, we delivered a great result. And, and along the way, we built some brand advocates. Yeah, I wonder how, how, how do you think companies should weigh their proactiveness with getting you know, narrative, narratives out there to establish that maybe they're not the, you know, if, if a company has, has a historic problem, do they need to get out ahead of it with um, you know, stories that talk about how they don't have, or they fix the problem, or do they need to, should they wait until you know, negativity bubbles up online? Well, the first thing I'd say is, you know, disinformation is a new channel, you know, particularly the social media challenges we're seeing on, on, through the social media platforms. But the old rules of crisis still apply. You know, what, what, do I always use, what do I always tell clients? You know, clarify an issue, don't amplify an issue. So yeah, if you think as a, your, your key target audiences or certain demographics, for example, might, or certain segments might be at risk of seeing your brand in a negative light, then you should be campaigning on that issue if you think that's right for your, for your organization, not because you're worried there might be some attacks on Facebook. You know, Think about the fundamentals. Um, when you're launching a new campaign, one thing we're seeing clients increasingly ask us is, you know, say you're launching a new brand campaign or particularly some of the platform stuff that Ogilvy is, you know, does to make brands matter uh, for, for a lot of our clients. They kind of go, well, do we need to be alive to a potential attack from you know, competitors, from, from other audiences, from you know, cynics, et cetera? And there we might want to put in place a kind of uh, a social listening um, uh, partner who, where we actually go through and, and look at where there might be attacks coming or what might be the issues they face and do a sort of an issues mapping, but also a social media listening exercise that that alerts us if we're starting to see momentum build. Because momentum's the key thing in disinformation, right? You know, you're not, people online are normalizing a, a so-called crazy issue. Um, and therefore, you've got to try and work out how many people are seeing this and, and why are people starting to talk about it and how do, we, how do we nip this in the bud quickly? So, so I think there's definitely a point to be done around the start of a campaign where you do absolutely take on the issue. Um, and prepare for potential attacks. But more, more of it is, goes back to the basics of you know, campaigning your positives and be alert to your potential negatives. So uh, you, you mentioned D-Day and, and the disinformation that was out there in order to you know, save allied troops' lives. Um, is there a role for disinformation as a tool for the good guys today? <laughs> it's funny you should say that. Uh, the first time I ever came across this issue, I was asked to to lecture at Oxford University and uh, we do a lot of training of, of uh, future leaders and future government communicators. And, was, and they said, the, the students said, look, can we have a session specifically on fake news? And I, and I said, yeah, sure, happily. But just so you know, I don't think fake news is that big a deal. I think it's been fake news forevermore. Um, but I see it's becoming talked about more. And I looked into it and I realized how big a problem it was. And I kind of, my message to the students that day was, guys, this is a really big problem and you, you've got a responsibility to go out there and fight it. And one of the guys put their hands up and said, uh, so I work in, uh, in a government, in a Latin American government, in fact it was, uh, and I worry that a lot of what I do um, is potentially inaccurate. Not that it was deliberately misleading, but mm. just that he was putting out statistics that he couldn't be sure are accurate. And I was like, well, the first thing you do is if you're worried about fake news, don't, don't, don't spread it. <laughs> so, <laughs> like, yeah, and, I, and ever since that first session, I've kind of I've, I've thought more and more about this. And I've had more and more clients, actually. 
and organizations turn to me and say, well, maybe we should get these bots on our side. Maybe we should be using this to push it. I'm like, you know what? I, that, there, there, goes, there goes the way of hell. Like, frankly, if we, we have a problem as a society, if we stop, to trust, stop trusting everything we see online and we stop trusting traditional news outlets, and so why on earth would you want to contribute to that problem? Why don't you want to be part of the good guys? You, know, you say you're a good guy, then, then go out and campaign in the right way and, and set the record straight and make sure you're always, always 100% buttoned down, factually accurate, but also campaigning on a positive rather than trying to spread misinformation that might be putting you in a good light. So it sounds like you have some optimism for the future, for the, the state of discourse in 10 or 20 years. Is it going to get better or is it going to be worse? Yeah, I, I'm definitely an optimist on this. I mean, I, I'm a glass half full kind of guy anyway, I think. But if you look at this problem, I, I do think that we're, we're actually just reaching a point in our relationship with social media where we're having to start to reassess it a little bit. Um, I find it was interesting that Facebook turned 15 this year. And it sort of feels to me like the social media is generally reaching its awkward teenage years. Uh, where you know it's, it's gone from being the little kid where we would just like you know send photos of our kids or or share stuff with grandparents online to being something that absolutely it touches every part of our life. And I think most users, particularly in places like US and UK, you know, where you and I are, um, haven't quite come to terms yet with the fundamental fact that this is a grown-up thing that we need to have a grown-up relationship with. Um, that's definitely true of regulators. I think the, the regulatory system is changing. Really interesting to see a former UK uh, Deputy Prime Minister Nick Clegg take over at Facebook, for example, because uh, on their policy side, because they realise, I think, that as a business, they needed to take seriously the challenge they were face facing from regulators and others, particularly in Europe. Um, but I think that, yeah, you're going to see new regulations come in, if you will, the EU Commission and, and probably some other uh, regulators will start to, to ground the social media giants as it gets, yeah, as the, to play my teenage analogy a bit further, as, they, as it starts to grow up themselves. And I think you're going to see a lot more self-regulation as well. I mean, the work that Facebook in particular uh, and Google as well, actually, have done to take down disinformation where they see it, not, be, not because they are necessarily going to get fined if they don't. I'm sure that's a factor, but mostly because they realize that if they want people to keep coming back to their platforms, people need to trust that, that what they're seeing is real. And so they're starting to grow up in, in terms of what they show and what they spread and what they take offline. Um, so I, I feel as though this is a moment in time and that when, we've, when, when our relationship with social media is a bit more grown up and we've all got a bit more of a healthy skepticism, but also the, the social media giants have got a, a probably a more thorough and systematic way of, of stopping us seeing these fakes, um, I think we're going to have a, a perfectly fine sort of thing, just in the same way that you know, King James II may have said that fake news is a problem in 1688, but actually the, the newspapers still keep, keep rolling and we kind of know which ones we'd like and which ones we don't. I wonder too, I mean, you, you mentioned the, your, the, the classes that you teach. Um, in, in high school, I, I did speech and debate, you know, so we were taught how to argue, you know, for something, how to argue against it, to measure all those, all those arguments. Um, I'm wondering if there's something in how we fundamentally educate kids about how to communicate and how to view communications and you know, if, there's, if there's something you can do earlier to ground people in the agendas that are out there as far as information is concerned. So you know what, I, I talk to a lot of uh, kids, adults, pensioners, you know, you know, 
about this issue. And I think it's actually the working age 30 or 40 somethings who are most at risk. Frankly, if you live in a world where, uh, where you're facing cyberbullying every day, you've been sent dick pics by, of, of someone else in school and stuff like that, you know, you, you know you've got to be skeptical about what you see online, right? It's the people like you and I, Steve, who spend our time, you know, seeing, you know, seeing, looking online and doing a lot of stuff, but not necessarily thinking about the dangers of it that probably need a bit of education. Um, <laughs> funnily enough, actually, um, the, some of the academic research that I've seen points towards a particular issue um, around older generations. Um, I'm not sure, intuitively, I feel like, you know, certainly the pe pensioners in, that I know, I'm thinking about my mum and dad here, are always a little bit sceptical about the news they see online and certainly when, when my mum's on Facebook, she's not necessarily going to be believing everything she sees. Um, but at the same time, the academic research does seem to suggest that a lot of the, the fake, the, this disinformation that has been shared online in the 2016 uh, US elections, for example, was above average um, coming from a 64 plus audience. And why it's interesting, of course, is that a lot of the counter-narrative campaigns that currently are run by governments, by brands, etc., are often quite kind of millennial or, or Gen Z focused. And so you're actually, you know, you've got to think again, going back to my point about being audience led, you've got to think about if actually some other different audiences like older people are sharing more likely to share this, have we got the content to reassure them, to counter-narrate uh, our position to them, ready and, and re able to activate um, in a way that's sympathetic and going to tell a story and move them onto a more positive footing. I've been trying it with my uncle, but I've not figured out how, how to, uh, <laughs> fair enough. Spin well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think that I, and look, I mean, ultimately your uncle and, and others like that, there's certain people who've always been, uh, you know, sharing their own point of view, plowing their own furrow. And it's definitely, it's a lot easier for those people to find other like-minded souls right now on the social media. Mm -hmm. But again, looking back in history, there's a great article in, I think it's Vanity Fair magazine from 1924, where they were, they were claiming that um, there was a real problem for the newswires, because the newswires were now so, so easily affordable that suddenly fake news editors were going to go and share what we're going, going around the world. But I think most people, right, and at that point in time, that was a problem, right? But I think most people on this, on this podcast, listening to the podcast, would probably trust AP or or other newswires right now, because over time they got used to it and we work out what the reputable sources are and that kind of stuff. Comes back to a bit of that kind of healthy skepticism, you know. I do it myself, I go down the pub and I say, I saw this thing online. I don't, I don't necessarily say, I saw this thing from a really good user or a guy I trust or something like that. <laughs> um, I, need, I need to stop myself sometimes, right? Well, yeah, and you, and you wonder with the, the um, older generations too, they, they were used to, their source of news was, yeah, the daily paper, whatever, whatever showed up um, at, at the house to read. You know, there wasn't necessarily the, the scope of information out there. So they, they trusted what yeah, they saw I, because somebody put time into it. They trusted what they bought, but I mean, maybe it's different in the U.S. context. But here in the U.K., you know, the traditional media newspapers, the print newspapers, uh, were, are pretty contested things. Uh, you know, so I look at you know, my nan used to read the Daily Express, which is a terrible newspaper. And on the weekend, she'd get the mail, the Daily Mail. Daily Mail is like uh, now a quite popular online website, but it's basically one of the most right-wing things you've ever met. And it's often full of complete nonsense. Um, and I used to go home and my nan would claim this stuff. And I'd be like, nan, have you been reading the Express again? He's like, don't, don't ever go at my newspaper, right? <laughs> the truth is, you know, like, I, I, I mean, the, the one good thing back then was 
and it's still true to a certain extent today that traditional newspapers had a lot more active regulation and there was a certain element of right of reply, for example. When I was a number 10 advisor, if, the, if one of the national newspapers wrote something incorrect about the government, um, we could ring them up and say, we want a retraction. I did, actually, often, they would ring us first and say, we, we've been told this, can you confirm it, um, or we're going to print it. And we say, if we said categorically we deny it, they would not print it. So you would mm. get there ahead of the problem. As, as, a, as you're ahead of comms in a, in a company coming under attack right now, you're probably not going to have that moment because, in fact, you know, they, even if it's a, someone who's trying to share, share accurate information, they don't even know how to contact you. And if they did, would you respond straight away if it's just some random Facebook user? Probably not. <laughs> so I think there's, you know, there, the, the challenge of, of volume and frequency is new. But the challenge of trusted media titles and contested facts is one that's been around you know, for, for many, many centuries. It won't be going away anytime soon. It certainly won't. certainly yeah. won't. So in your research, um, what do you see? What's coming next? What should we be worried about? Um, well, I mean, we're looking at this stuff all the time uh, across various different uh, territories and, and uh, platforms. One thing that I'm starting to see, particularly with which worries me in Twitter, is you know people know about this sort of large bubble of alt-right activists, um, all of whom have you know make America great again or keep America great, like, um, and these the, a lot of those are driven by you know by automated accounts, profiles that look like bots, potentially coming out of Russia and other places. Um, there also there's also a whole of a lot of human beings in that in, in the, that kind of alt-right uh, disinformation echo chamber. Um, what I think is really interesting in terms of a trend is you're starting to see quite big media personalities from the, from the kind of the right, right wing of the US, UK and Europe start to activate that echo chamber. So we saw a really interesting piece. We've done a really interesting piece of analysis um, around the Notre Dame fire where we saw individual, very high profile um, media celebrities, for want of a better word, um, actually using language that was clearly targeted at getting that alt-right disinformation bubble to start retweeting them. And I think they can only be doing that because they're hoping to get more engagement online so they can sell themselves to get, to get onto you know, the next media profile, get on Fox News or get on various different profiles and, 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 get, and commercialize it. Or because they are themselves just sharing this view and happen to be, by coincidence, doing, getting onto it, getting interested in stuff. But it does feel to me like there is a there is a disinformation playbook that's being shared, either organically or uh, or deliberately out there that is working in the alt right and it's working globally. But it's all it all comes back to that that coalition of of sources, some humans, some bots, that seem to really start start gunning behind Trump in the 2015-2016 period. Do you think it's limited to the alt-right or do you feel like there could be other untapped echo chambers, sleeper, sleeper cells of discontent out there? Well, I mean, I'll tell you one thing. Here in the UK, we've got a massive alt-left uh, disinformation bubble problem where you've got, you know, fake, well, not fake, you've got media platforms that are being created by people who have no desire to, to spread accurate news information. I'm thinking of particularly an outlet called The Canary, which is you know, of the left and seems to only have a, a very uh, 
partial uh, respect of what is accurate um, and other outlets like that that are sharing news all the time and, and actually are feeding their own echo chambers of you know very left-wing activists so i think there's you know, we've done an analysis of the eu elections and in places like hungary or in uh, the ukraine elections recently which has been a huge uh, huge fight of disinformation you know, it doesn't matter what your what wing of, of politics you certainly come from come from in ukraine it's about whether you're pro-Russia or pro or, or speaking in Ukrainian often. And there's this whole different disinformation levels all around the space. I do think the alt-right uh, sort of global echo chamber around that, all of which these Twitter users seem to use the hashtag, you know, MAGA or CAG, uh, that I think they're quite interesting. And I think the way that, that human beings are, are starting to almost feed that beast is quite a, is, is a new phenomenon that we've spotted. But it's definitely well beyond the alt-right bubble that there's a problem. And, and for those who want to believe the challenge is a Russian, uh, Russian government bot-fueled desire to keep Donald Trump in the, in the White House, they're kidding themselves. It's a lot worse than that. <laughs> Do you think, um, how would that problem play out differently in less developed countries, um, countries that maybe aren't as well educated as others? Is it going to be amplified and... Well, I think, I mean, we've seen massive problems in lots of, uh, you know, lots of other countries. There was Facebook first pioneered its disinformation changes in Brazil because they were worried about the disinformation being shared um, ahead of the, uh, the presidential elections where Bolsonaro got elected. In India, we saw WhatsApp um, being used really quite cynically to, to try and create a lot of fear that led to some, some quite tragic deaths where people were hung because they were being accused of of uh, of some horrible things. So this is happening across lots of markets. Um, one thing I think that's interesting is that you know we do, as I say, that the kind of the discourse in uh, Western Europe and the US tends to be focused on Twitter and Facebook to a certain extent, um, whereas in other markets you're seeing disinformation through other channels. They might be owned by Facebook. For example, I just mentioned WhatsApp. Um, there's also really interesting how WhatsApp stories is, uh, sorry, WhatsApp status is becoming a massive way of spreading disinformation, whereas, which is all behind uh, privacy lines, very hard to see. It's, sort of, it's part of that kind of world of dark social where social listening won't pick it up, um, as opposed to stuff that's being shared on Facebook or, or certainly on Twitter, which is much easier to spot. So different markets are seeing different channels being, uh, being used, but, the, but yeah, it's definitely a challenge uh, across the globe. Excellent. Ian, this has been a tremendous conversation. Thank you so much for joining the Ogilvy podcast today. Thanks for having me on. Um, and next time you're in Denver, look us up and we'll, we'll come visit you out in the London office when we get a chance. That'd be great. There's a, there's a, a beer and a whole history book waiting for you. <laughs> Excellent. That, that sounds good. Thanks for listening to the Ogilvy Podcast, smart people saying smart, pithily quotable things. Ogilvy is a creative network making brands matter across 132 offices in 83 countries. Thanks again to my guest, Ian Bundred. On a personal note, this is my final episode as host of the Ogilvy Podcast. After 15 years working with some amazing brands, I'll be leaving the Ogilvy family for a new adventure. I realized this morning I have not been the most grateful podcast host. I'd like to thank Nita, my producer and sound engineer, who's been by my side for every single recording. You are amazing. Thanks to Erica and Chris, who've helped shepherd all of our episodes, and to Cheryl, Kelly, Don Marie, and the rest of the Ogilvy leadership team for allowing me the time for this passion project. Join us next time when we evaluate how traffic patterns are influencing bird migrations, the output of solar panels, and the music of Miley Cyrus. 
Until then, goodbye, and we'll see you at the next episode.